Thanks again to um, the, 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 friend, the friendly folks at Ohio University for allowing me to be here this evening and uh, for uh, making it possible for me to share this, um, this, evening with, this evening's program with all of you. Um, I'm guessing that some of you probably did attend the, the talk maybe two weeks ago by Kempo, Carthur, and Bechet. Anybody here who did that one? Okay, yeah. Um, we, I, decided to, um, I decided to give this particular topic this evening as a way of following up on his lecture because his lecture uh, was from the, from the, really from the heart. His, his lecture came from the heart as to his experience as a person who had been practicing uh, Buddhism for uh, almost, uh, I mean, you could say all of his 85 years. So he was speaking from his experience as, uh, as a person who had fled from Tibet in 1959. He was speaking as a, a person who had practiced Buddhism his entire life. And his main message was the emphasis on the practice of meditation and the practice of loving kindness and compassion. And that really, if you wanted to summarize his talk, it was that if you want to study uh, all, this is actually to use a quote from the Buddha, would be the, the best way to summarize his talk. The Buddha once said, if you want to study my teachings, you don't have to study many teachings. You only have to study one teaching. And what is that one teaching? It's loving kindness and compassion. Because whoever possesses loving kindness and compassion has all of the qualities of the Buddha in their hand. That's what the Buddha said. If you want to practice my teaching, you don't have to practice many. You only have to practice one, and that's loving kindness and compassion. If you have that, then you have all of the qualities of the Buddha in the palm of your hand. So this was really his message, and it came from the heart. And I'm thinking that really the only thing I could add to that, to, to that lecture, would be to talk a little bit about how one approaches the practice of loving kindness and compassion, how one approaches the practice of Buddhism. Because he talked a lot about the philosophy of love and compassion and a lot about the importance of it. And so what I'm going to talk about is more related to the practical aspect. How can you practice loving kindness and compassion when your family members won't leave you alone or when things go badly in your life? How can you practice loving kindness and compassion in the face of global injustice? How can you practice loving kindness and compassion in the face of, of, of any kind of unfairness? How can you practice like that? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Before I get to that, however, I figure I probably should fill in some holes about, uh, about Buddhism in Tibet so that you'll have a context for what I'm going to talk about. Um, most folks know the history of Buddhism, but I'll, the, the capsule version is that uh, Buddhism is approximately 2,500 years old, which means it's, uh, the Buddha lived 500 years before Christ. So a, a lot of folks say to me, well, what did uh, the Buddha have to say about Jesus? Well, he, he hadn't been born yet. So the, there's really no comment by the Buddha about Jesus because they didn't live at the same time. So uh, Buddhism is 2,500 years old. It, was, um, it, uh, it uh, began in India, in India and then spread to all of the nations of, uh, of, Asia, of the Asian world. And so you could say in that way that Buddhism, although it started in, uh, in India, it uh, then spread throughout all of Asia. And every nation that it went to, it, it actually melded with the culture blended into the culture. It was folded into the culture of that nation. And so you get different practices of Buddhism based on the cultures that Buddhism melded with. The, and you also see different artistic aesthetics. For example, in China and Japan, there is the, the aesthetic that most people, or the, the, the philosophy that most people know as Zen Buddhism. 
Even these days in modern English, Zen has entered the literature. I mean, they're even using it in advertising. Oh, that's very Zen. You know, the, and, and what they see as being Zen is this idea of simplicity, of the beauty in simplicity. And in fact, if you look at Zen Buddhist temples, they're very austere, they're very open. The, the walls are painted white, the oaken beams are dark, so there's this dark and light together. And then, there's the, uh, and then there are the altars, which can be as simple as uh, an unadorned wooden bench with three stones sitting on it in the shape of a sitting Buddha. I mean, you can, you can just imagine how austere that would look. Then you look at the culture of, uh, of Thailand and the, the beautiful artistry of, the, of the, Buddhas, the Buddha figures there incredibly ornate and the temples are also incredibly ornate because that was the aesthetic of that culture and uh, when you think about Buddhism in Tibet you see uh, color most people are familiar with uh, Tibetan Buddhist prayer flags they're multicolored if you've seen pictures of Tibetan Buddhist temples they're full of wall hangings that are incredibly intricate and ornate and colorful and in fact, uh, what I find very interesting is that there are a lot of similarities in uh, the Tibetan Buddhist artistic expression and the Native American artistic expression. In fact, both cultures have sand paintings. Native American culture uses sand paintings for religious purposes, and so do the Tibetans. I just think that it's, it's uh, too much of a coincidence. But at any rate, if you look at what happened uh, at the time that Buddhism went to Tibet, when uh, Buddhism spread to Tibet, this was about the 7th century CE, so the 7th century uh, of the Common Era, or some people would call it AD for the year of our Lord. And so around set between, in the 700s and 800s is when Buddhism went to Tibet. And then uh, there, was a, there was a flourishing of Buddhism in Tibet at that time, which was followed by a government suppression when, a diff when an anti-Dharmic king took the throne. And then after, uh, he, after he died, there was again a second flourishing of Buddhism in Tibet. And so, at, so pretty much all of the flowering of Buddhism in India was collected by Tibetan translators who came to uh, India to study Buddhism and by Indian pundits or scholars who went to Tibet. So there was a lot of, I guess you could say, spiritual commerce between these two nations of India and Tibet. And this would be in the 10 hundreds. And what followed was a, a, major, a major political event in India with the, uh, an invasion, an invasion of uh, India at that time. Um, uh, by uh, armies that uh, were trying to, um, I guess you could say, trying to establish uh, the Muslim faith. And so in doing so, a lot of Buddhism disappeared from India. A lot of Buddhism disappeared during that period. And so what happened after that was that all of these, all of these bits that the Tibetans collected, they kept in Tibet. And so you could say that in some ways the Tibetans saved Indian Buddhism. They, they collected all of the teachings and held them in their mountain country for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so even though Buddhism was virtually wiped out in the land of its origin, it remained in all of these missionary lands, China, Korea, Thailand, and so forth. And so in a way, uh, Tibet served a great function they kept a lot of the teachings there and kept them intact. So then in 1959, when the, the Tibetans uh, in the eastern part of the country rose up against the communist government and the communist government responded by suppressing the rebellion and, beginning, and they began to uh, punish the monks and nuns thinking that they had brought about this rebellion then the monks and nuns began to leave Tibet. 
and they returned to India. So you could say that it was like repatriation. They brought Buddhism in some ways back to India. And they gathered in communities, and then from those communities they began to spread outward. So that was really the opening of Tibetan Buddhism to the world, was 1959. The first Tibetan Buddhists came to the United States in 1965. And the, and the first Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist that we know of that came to Ohio was when Kempo Karthar Rinpoche came here in 1976, 77, excuse me. So, so Tibetan Buddhism is still a fairly new phenomena in the United States, still fairly new. If you think about it, it took 200 years for Buddhism to be firmly planted in Tibet. So I think we're in the very early days of what will be probably another 200 years of trying to establish Tibetan Buddhism in the United States. So I think it's kind of an interesting time to be, it's an interesting time to be looking at and, and learning about Tibetan Buddhism. So anyhow, so that's the history lesson. I had to do that because it gives you an idea of why Tibetan Buddhism is somewhat special among the world's expressions of Buddhism because they collected everything. They collected the flowering of Indian Buddhism and they kept it. So they didn't get just this piece or just that piece. They got everything. And so the Tibetans feel pretty happy about that. They feel a little bit proud of that idea. And, and, what, they, and what they had was they had, um, I guess what they developed was something that became known as Vajrayana Buddhism. Vajra means indestructible and Yana means path, an indestructible path. And some people say, well, what does that mean, a path that's indestructible? Well, to, to get to that, you have to understand the other two yanas that are spoken of by scholars. Scholars speak about the hinayana and the mahayana. Now, maha means great, and hina means small. So the small vehicle and the large vehicle. Now, that doesn't make sense either. What does that mean? The, but the, the small vehicle really and the large vehicle are, are not differentiated by their size, their physical size. It's not like one's a, a VW bug and the other is a bus. But I guess you could say that it is similar to a VW bug and it is similar to a bus because it has to do with the intention of the person who's practicing it. The person who's practicing the Hinayana is interested in their own benefit, practicing meditation, practicing loving kindness for their own benefit which interestingly enough is how I started. I started practicing meditation for my own benefit to sort of cool out a little bit because college was stressful. So, but the Mahayana is, is really about the motivation and intention of the person who's practicing. Maha, the, what makes the Mahayana the great or large vehicle is that the intention is to benefit everyone. Hinayana means benefit for self, Mahayana means benefit for everyone. So the person who's practicing the Hinayana is practicing meditation and loving kindness just for their own benefit. And the person who practices Mahayana is practicing meditation and loving kindness for the benefit of everyone. It's a minor detail, but it really makes a big difference. Because if you're practicing for your own benefit, you might have the tendency to give it up if it's not going well. Because after all, it's just like another self-improvement technique like you know, exercising or uh, eating right or doing all those things that we tell ourselves are good for ourselves. We could give it up if, if, we, if we think it's not working. But if you're doing something for the benefit of others, you're less likely to give it up. And so in a way, that's, that's beneficial. So doing things for the benefit of others can actually help you. The Dalai Lama once said, there's two kinds of selfish people in the world. There are foolish, selfish people and wise, selfish people. The foolish, selfish person does everything just for themselves, but the wise, selfish person does things for the benefit of others. Because when you do things for the benefit of others, you become beloved by everyone. <laughs> yeah, in business they call it customer service. <laughs> okay, so this explains the Hinayana and the Mahayana. But what's the Vajrayana? What makes it indestructible? What's, what's so indestructible about it? I mean, you could say that practically it's indestructible because it's lasted this long. But really what it's talking about is the technique. 
the technique. The first two, Hinayana and Mahayana, talk about the attitude and the intention with which you're practicing. But the Vajrayana talks mainly about technique. Technique. You use the Mahayana motivation of wishing to benefit everyone. But you add to that techniques that work with your basic nature, your basic inner goodness, I guess you could say. Buddhism is unique in that it teaches that all beings are basically good and that they develop negative habits and that those negative habits can be purified. The Buddha taught that every person has a mind and that mind has as its basic nature sanity and goodness. That was his basic teaching. That's, so what he said was that every person has the potential to become a Buddha. It, I, I like Buddhism because it's very egalitarian. Uh, you, you don't have to be special. To, you can actually sit in the boss's chair. You know, in other faith traditions, you can't do that. But in Buddhism, you could actually become a Buddha yourself. So, the, so, then the, um, so then in terms of practice, in terms of the practice of this idea, if it's true then that we have a mind that has Buddha nature, then what type of practice would we do? We would do a practice that cultivates that Buddha nature, that relates to that Buddha nature directly. And so that's why Vajrayana is called indestructible, because the techniques of Vajrayana work with our Buddha nature. And the main techniques of Vajrayana meditation are uh, build upon the meditations of the Hinayana and the Mahayana. Quiet sitting meditation is a basic practice to all three yanas, whether it's Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. You always start by practicing quiet sitting meditation. And in the Mahayana, they add to that meditation on love and compassion. And in the Vajrayana, they add to that the practice of mantra and visualization. Mantra and visualization. Because what, and what do you visualize? You visualize an enlightened being, a Buddha, of which there are, are many, because there wasn't just one Buddha and will never be another one. There's an endless supply of human beings, and so there's an endless potential supply of Buddhas. And if, you're, if you have any familiarity with Tibetan Buddhist art, you'll know that there are many representations of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And all of these representations refer to, I guess you could call them, for lack of a better word, you could call them saints. Because there are, there's really no such thing as a god or a goddess in Buddhism. Because the Buddha didn't talk about a god figure. Buddhism doesn't deal with uh, the worship of a god. Everything you see, including images in a Buddhist temple, are not representations of a supreme creator god. They are representations, all of them, of saints. Now, those of you who are familiar with the different Christian traditions can see the difference. Because in the, um, I think we'll use the Catholic tradition as the example. In, in the Catholic faith, there is the representation or the idea of God. There is the idea of the Holy Spirit, and there's the idea of Jesus. So in the Catholic tradition, God is three. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how they look at it in the, in the Catholic faith. God is worshipped, but saints are venerated. Saints are people who lived lives of holiness, lived exemplary lives that we would like to emulate. And so in the Catholic tradition, they make a, a really, a, they make a strong distinction between worship and veneration. Because otherwise people would, would think that, they're, uh, that people are worshipping uh, Saint Francis or any of the saints. And, but that's not what's happening. They're venerating them because their example is thought to be worthy of emulation. And so that's what's really happening in Buddhism. There's no worship per se. But so you might say, well then why 
do you place a, a, an, an image of the Buddha somewhere and put a flower in front of it? What's that supposed to be? If that's not worship, what is that? Well, I always tell people that it's very similar to the shrines that all of us have in our homes. Everybody here, I'm sure, has a shrine of some kind in their home. I'm virtually certain that everybody has one. And the shrine that you all have in your homes consists of all of the photographs of your loved ones, whether they are photographs of your Aunt Mary or your grandma or your grandpa or your dog. You know, some people have pictures of their dogs and their cats. And some of them have those pictures of dog, cats, aunts and uncles and grandmothers and parents in gold frames. Now, if you put your sainted grandma in a gold frame, this does not mean you are worshiping your grandma. That is not what that means. That means you have great honor for her. You think of her that much that you put her in a gold frame instead of just the teepee thing you can buy at Kmart. So the idea then of veneration is like that. And so the Buddha does not particularly care if he gets a flower. He doesn't particularly care if he gets a gold frame or a plastic one. He doesn't particularly care. But if we give that to the Buddha, it's not that he's going to say, oh, thank you very much, that was wonderful. What we're doing is we're actually enriching that which is Buddha within us. I often use the example of the Veterans Day Parade when I talk about the difference between veneration and worship. Um, if a person from Mars came to the United States and watched the Veterans Day Parade, they may go back to Mars with this report. Boy, those Earth people, they are very strange. They worship a piece of cloth. When this piece of cloth went down the avenue, everybody put their hands over their heart in veneration. Well, we are not worshiping the flag. We are not worshiping the flag. When you see the, the veterans and others put their hand over their heart, they're actually not worshiping the fabric, but what it stands for, what it symbolizes to them, which is freedom. Freedom. They, they are really, they're honoring that which it stands for. And so when a person honors a Buddha statue, they're honoring that which it stands for, which in a way is really interesting because what they're honoring is actually their own nature. And all of this explanation is given so that when I talk about Vajrayana, when we talk about Vajrayana and we talk about visualizing ourself as an enlightened being, imagining that we are a sainted Buddha, we're not doing something that's really weird. We're actually relating to that which is indestructible within us, the indestructible goodness, the indestructible truth, the indestructible love and compassion that is our Buddha nature. And that's why Vajrayana is called the indestructible vehicle, because when you practice Vajrayana, particularly the practices of mantra and visualization, you're relating to yourself as you really are. I, I frequently recall uh, when Kempo Karthar Rinpoche, the, the, the Lama who spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, when he was once asked about this, uh, he, uh, he was asked once by someone who said, well, imagining or visualizing myself as a Buddha seems a little bit dishonest because when I look at myself in the mirror, I'm not a Buddha. And he said, well, you've made up who you think you are right now. You've already made that up completely. So why couldn't you be the Buddha? Why couldn't you be a, a holy being? Because you've already made up who you think you are right now. And this is really true. We've made it up. And it changes all the time, but we keep trying to tell people that we, we are real and we don't change, which is really, that's really crazy. You know, to say that we are somehow permanent and changeless is like totally crazy. I look in the mirror every day and I see the gray hair coming out and I know that I am changing. And I know that my attitudes and my ideas are always evolving. Who I am is not static, it's moving. And we're all like that. So why not move in a positive direction? And that's the, the function of, of visualization and mantra, is to ensure that that movement is in a positive direction. So 
at any rate, the reason that I gave all of this his history and so forth and so on is because this gives you an idea of why Tibetan Buddhism in particular is special. Because instead of calling it Vajrayana Buddhism, we should call it Yana Buddhism. That's what one of the uh, translator scholars that I have met in, um, in the United States, that's what he says. He says, instead of calling it Vajrayana Buddhism, we should call it Yana Buddhism because it incorporates all of the practices involved with the three yanas. It has the, the quiet sitting meditation and the ethical behavior of the Hinayana. It has the compassion meditation of the Mahayana. And it has the visualization and mantra practice of the Vajrayana. So really, it's all, it's all there. It's all in there. And so uh, the reason I gave this introduction is so that what I'm going to say next will make a little bit of sense. Because people, uh, many people asked me after the last presentation, well, that all sounds great, but how does a real person approach Tibetan Buddhism and get started in the practice of Tibetan Buddhism? It's so big. And they're absolutely right. I mean, Tibetan Buddhism is, is quite amazing. It's huge. If you look at, the, at Amazon and see how many books are written about Tibetan Buddhism, it's, it's staggering. When I first started practicing in 1977, there, I, I, could, I bet that there were probably only maybe 20 or 30 books on Tibetan Buddhism anywhere. And there were most of them uh, scholarly dissertations that couldn't be understood. If anybody doubts what I'm saying, um, take a look at um, Gunth uh, Herbert Gunther's um, jewel, uh, translation of Jewel Ornament of Liberation. It's impenetrable. I, I have no idea what he's saying. I have no idea what he's saying. He's using a kind of, um, today we would call it psychobabble. I have no idea what he's talking about. But, I mean, not to, not to you know, to be bad with his scholarship. It just didn't, it didn't hit me. It didn't speak to my heart. And I looked at that and I said, wow. It sounds great, but what does it mean? You know, so anyway. Um, now I'm going to get in trouble for dissing Herbert Gunther. But anyhow, he's a great, great scholar, great scholar. I just don't get it. I, anyway, but, so, but now there are hundreds of books on Tibetan Buddhism. Where do you start? I mean, how do you, how do you even begin to study and practice this vast tradition? This huge, vast tradition. Well, I have some, I have some handy-dandy quick helps for that. Because, uh, because it, I found it necessary when introducing people to Tibetan Buddhism to start with the practical aspect of, of everything. So what's the practical thing that any person could do to start practicing Buddhism? And I really think that the, that the first thing to do would be to get some get a handle on meditation, on quiet sitting meditation. We can just talk about Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. So get a handle on sitting meditation. You don't have to, to enroll in an expensive course, pay people a lot of money, or, or even buy expensive books to learn how to meditate. Uh, you're lucky right here on campus and right here in Athens you can get meditation instruction. It's free. It is, isn't it? Yes. Okay, okay, all right, good. <laughs> Just had to check that out. Um, the, but if you want, if you want to read a book that will give you meditation instruction, uh, the book that I recommend to people most frequently has, is just a two-word title, Dharma Paths. D-H-A-R-M-A, first word. Second word, Paths. P-A-T-H-S. Is it S? Dharma Paths? Yeah, okay. Dharma Paths, yeah. And, uh, and uh, just, you know, and you can just uh, Google that right up. And uh, it's written by Kempo Kartha Rinpoche, who you don't need to know how to spell his name because it's Dharma Paths. <laughs> it's published by Snow Lion Publishing, and that will help you if you're in the Google department. Uh, in the chapter, in the chapter called Taming the Mind, he gives a full meditation instruction. All of, the, all of the different points of how you sit, how you, uh, how you allow your mind to come to rest, what to do when your mind wanders, it's all in the book. And so I would say that the best thing to do is to, 
is, is either to get a book like that that's a complete instruction or to talk to one of the folks here that's connected with the, the, the Karma Takes Some Choling Center of Athens and get a lesson. If there's a little time near the end, I'll, I'll give a lesson too, but we'll see how much time we have, how we're doing on that. But that's really the main thing to do is, um, is to start a practice of sitting meditation of your own. Now, you don't have to go crazy and try to sit for hours like you see people uh, in photographs and, and hear about these Zen monks who you know, sit for hours and hours and hours. The, the way we teach people meditation is to start with very short periods of time, five minutes, 10 minutes. Because if you do a practice of meditation and it's easy for you, that's the best. That's the best. If it, if it becomes a huge burden, then you're not going to want to do it. So doing a short practice of quiet sitting meditation is probably the best. It's the best and the easiest. And if you do meditation every day, it's like anything else. If you do it every day, it will slowly have an impact on you. And because, of, because the way the technique works, and I think I'm just going to have to share some simple ideas about the technique now while I'm thinking of it. Uh, you'll have, a, you'll have a, a, a handle on what's going on in your mind. So let me just give you the sketch. I'll give you the sketch of quiet sitting meditation. You probably already heard this, but it'll be just a, a brief um, study up for some folks who've already heard it. To practice quiet sitting, you can sit in a chair. You don't have to have a special cushion. You don't have to have a special setup. You just sit in a chair. Feet flat on the floor. It's pretty easy. And you place your hands, palm downward on your legs. It's pretty simple. Your shoulders should be straight, but not like a vulture. You can have your chin tucked in slightly, your eyes cast downward. If what you're looking at is uh, causing some uh, difficulty for your eyes, you can even close your eyes. But it, if you close your eyes, you might fall asleep. Not the worst thing, but not what you're looking for. And that's the basic posture. Legs, seat, back, shoulders, hands, and arms, chin, gaze. And if you like, uh, some people say that they have difficulty with um, uh, excessive swallowing while they're trying to meditate. So you can, one way to slow that down is to touch the tip of the tongue to the upper palate behind your front teeth. And then just let your jaw relax. It relaxes your jaw so you don't hold tension in it, and it prevents excess swallowing. So there you are. That's the posture. The technique is to start with one, just one, deep breath, breathing in, through your nose if you can, through your mouth if you're congested, and then one breath out. And then after that, you just let your breath come and go naturally. You don't try to force it. And you place your attention on the breath as it comes in, and your attention on the breath as it goes out. And that's it. If you like, you can count the breath. In breath, out breath, mentally count one. In breath, out breath, mentally count two, and so forth. You can go up to an easy number like seven or 10, or you can go up to 20, or even 100. And that's it. It's very simple. You allow your attention to rest on the breath. And when a thought comes up, if you can, you just let it go by. Just let it go by. But if it catches your attention and you begin to think that thought, like, oh, yeah, I have to do this thing tomorrow, and oh, and then I have to do that thing tomorrow, then you touch the, the thought lightly with your attention. because. You're, you're, you are aware that you're thinking. So that means there's something going on in your mind other than the thought. So you touch that thought lightly with your attention. You can label it thinking, drop it, and go back to the technique. You can actually turn your attention to the technique and follow the breath again. That's, it's really simple. The, one Tibetan teacher called this touch and go. You touch the thought, let it go, and return. It's very similar to what happens when you lose attentiveness and then regain it. 
The example I like to give is, is peeling carrots or peeling potatoes. If you're peeling carrots or potatoes over the sink and suddenly you start thinking of something else, you might start peeling them onto the floor. And then you, instead of, you don't freak out when that happens. You don't go, oh my god, I put them on the floor. You, you, just, you just gather them up and you put them back in the sink. And then you just pay attention again. That's it. Meditation doesn't have to be some big hairy deal. It's, you know, it's, you're just training your attention to be where you want it. In this case, it's on the breath. And when you put your attention on just that one thing, then all of those extraneous thoughts that have been jumping for attention start to calm down. It's not that you're trying to use a broom and sweep your mind clean of thoughts. That is not the point of meditation. I have to tell you that right now because it's a popular misconception. I, tell, I ask people to tell me, well, you know, how, how, is, uh, how has it been for you to try to learn meditation? They say, oh, it's just terrible. I can't make my mind empty out. I can't clear it. I can't clean my mind out. I don't know why. And I say, well, it's because you're not supposed to. It's impossible to sweep your mind clean of thought. It's just, it's not happening. You don't have to worry about that. What the point of meditation is not to clean your mind like a slate. The object of meditation is to notice and discard distraction. You notice distraction and you discard it. That's it. And then when you notice and discard distraction, you cultivate mindfulness. You cultivate attentiveness. And those things will actually help you in other areas of your life. You'll actually be able to be attentive to studies if that's what you want to do, athletics if that's what you want to do, relationships if that's what you want to do. I mean, how many times have we been sitting with somebody we're supposed to care about and our mind is a thousand miles away? And they always notice. What's with that? But at any rate, having this kind of attention can really help make everything about your life better. And so with meditation, you have the ability to d discard the things that you don't want to worry about. You can, it actually makes people worry less. They've been doing studies about it. If you're a worrier, meditation will help you because you won't worry as much because you'll learn how to discard distraction. It's really kind of clever. I have a friend who's a psychotherapist, and he uses meditation with his clients to help them uh, be able to notice their emotional states and be able to let go of worry. So it's, it's, got, it's got its values. And so that's the very first thing you could do if you wanted to get started in Tibetan Buddhism, as well as just about any other kind of Buddhism. Establish a practice of meditation every day if you can or a few times a week if you can't. What the side effects of this is that you'll begin to notice what you think. In fact, somebody once said to me, uh, she said, it's as though the volume got turned up on my thoughts and I noticed them more. And that's precisely what happens when you meditate. You begin to notice what you're thinking about. And you go, I am thinking about that? Oh, heavens. You know. And so that leads us to the second practice that you can do. The first one is meditation. The second one is to begin to actually to begin to focus more on, I guess what, for lack of a better word, is um, virtuous behavior. That sounds corny. But basically it's non-self-centered behavior. Because if you remember the Buddha's teaching on the Four Noble Truths, he said suffering's part of life, it has a cause, it has a solution, and there's a path. Well, under that cause part, he said that the cause of suffering in this world is clinging. It's clinging and grasping. And what do we cling to and grasp at the most? It's self. And so really what happens as a side effect of meditation is you begin to notice how selfish you are. I, I noticed how selfish I am all the time. And so what that, when that happens, instead of going, oh, I'm a terrible person, you actually let go of that. And you say, I'm going to try, I'm going to try to be better. Yeah, I'm going to try to be better. And so really you begin to actually watch what you're doing and be more careful and more selective about what you do. I mean, the, this body and the speech and our thoughts 
you know, we actually do have power. Not over what we think, say, or do in the first moment of reaction to something, but maybe in the second moment, the third moment, the 88th moment. We can slowly get control of that. And that's why meditation allows people to stop worrying and so forth and so on. And so that's the second thing to do, is just to be aware and to make better choices about what you do with your energy. The, the third practice that I think is useful for people is compassion meditation. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You can, um, there's a, a particular practice in the Theravada tradition called metta, M-E-T-T-A or the extending of love and compassion to others. It basically consists of sitting and doing a little meditation, and then after you've done a little meditation, you mentally extend love to people, consciously. You first start with people you care for, you think that you extend love to them, and then you think about people you're unfamiliar with, and you extend love to them. And then you think of people who you don't know at all, and you extend love to them, and then you think of people who've given you trouble, and you mentally extend love to them. This practice called metta meditation is a way of just extending love and compassion to people by training your mind to do so. Now, a lot of people think this is kind of corny, but if you go back and you look at the work that was done by um, Gandhi and the work that was done by Martin Luther King, and you, t and you learn about the, the nonviolent movement, the whole movement of nonviolence, it has to do with being able to put yourself in the place of the person who is aggressing against you and have some empathy for their pain and some empathy for their suffering. And that's what meta-meditation allows you to do, to have some sense that they are suffering. They may not be suffering right now and may not be suffering in the way you are, but there's, you, can, uh, you can bet that at some point in the future, even the worst tyrant is going to fall. And even the worst injustice is going to fall. It's going to happen. And if you can mentally extend at least the benefit of the doubt, this is, this is beneficial to you. And the, it's not going to correct the injustice, but what it will do is it will quell your hatred. It will quell your hatred. Because the Buddha, in his teachings, said, hate never once dispelled hate. Only love dispels hate. And this is really shown in, in the work of Gandhi. This is shown in the work of Martin Luther King. This is shown in all of these great leaders' strategies. Hate never once dispelled hate. And his Holiness the Dalai Lama likes to say, uh, hatred and anger only destroy their container. Hatred and anger only destroy their container. The person who is feeling and nurturing their hatred and anger, they're the ones who suffer, not the people they hate. I had a person come to me once. Uh, I was giving a lecture in Florida after a, a recent election. We'll just put it that way. I was giving a talk on love and compassion in Florida after a recent election, and someone came up to me from the audience and saying, I just want you to know, I think that uh, I like the idea of love and compassion, but I am not going to love my enemy. I'm sorry. That person just got elected president, and it's unfair. And they're bad, and I am not going to, I'm not going to stop hating them. I think it's, it's important for me to continue to hate them. It's like, okay, fine. And I said, um, I said, well, okay, I get it, but that person is not suffering. You are. You're the one who can't eat and can't sleep because you're overwhelmed with hatred and anger. You're the one who's having a bad life because you're overwhelmed by hatred and anger. So I'm just going to invite you to think that it might not be a bad idea for you to occasionally say a prayer, because she was a Christian. So I said, occasionally just say a prayer for this person you dislike. And she says, I'm not doing it. I don't care. And I said, fine. I just tell you to entertain the notion. Well, the next day she came to the program. She actually returned. I didn't think I'd see her again. She came back to the program the very next day and she said, okay, I prayed for him. Are you happy? 
And I said, sure. You know, I said, sure. Because I knew that for her, healing was on the way. Okay? So this, I guess you could say, is the third method, the third way that a person can connect to Buddhism. After meditation and watching one's conduct and trying to make it come from a place of less selfishness, relatively less selfishness, would be to meditate on compassion as a way of basically strengthening the muscles of your compassion. I mean, if you don't strengthen a muscle, it withers, so you strengthen it. I mean, if athletes can visualize themselves making baskets and throwing javelins, we can imagine ourselves being more compassionate. It just stands to reason. And then um, if, you, if you have an interest in mantra meditation, the, uh, the, the easiest mantra meditation to learn uh, is the mantra Om Mani Padme Hum. And I can write it on the board for you. Um, because this mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, is, it's, a lot of mantras don't make sense to us because we don't understand the language. But uh, Om is the first syllable of many, many mantras, both in the Hindu tradition and in the Buddhist tradition. And it stands for the awakened form of the Buddha, the awakened body of the Buddha. And Hum is the, also a feature of many mantras, and it in this particular case refers to the awakened mind of the Buddha. So we have body-mind of Buddha, and then mani means jewel, padme, for those of you George Lucas fans, means, you know, I mean, does anybody, anybody a Star Wars fan? Okay, okay, padme, she's, it's a character in one of the Star Wars movies. Anyway, um, anyway, I, I, hey, I, I'm good with this. Um, there's a book called The Dharma of Star Wars, check it out. Um, it's true. Padme means lotus. So, om, jewel, lotus, hmm. Wow, what does that mean? It's basically a way of saying uh, an epithet, which is a descriptive phrase. It's a way of saying the name of the bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, which name is so long I'm not going to spell it, because I'll get it wrong. But the the... I guess you could call him a Buddhist saint. He's a bodhisattva, uh, a person who's on the path of awakening. And he lived at the time of the Buddha, and he's credited with having spoken one of the sutras. It's called the Heart Sutra, that famous sutra that says, emptiness is form, form is emptiness. I just, that makes my head hurt. I just have to tell you. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. There is no other form but emptiness. There is no other emptiness but form. What? Anyway, I'll get to that another time, not tonight. But Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig is, is the bodhisattva of compassion. So if you meditate on the form of Avalokiteshvara or Chenrezig in Tibetan, if you meditate on that form and on that mantra, you are working with what is compassion within yourself, the indestructible part of you that's compassionate. I like to use the tuning fork analogy to talk about this sort of thing. I mean, if mantra is sound, then this works. Okay, so if you have two tuning forks that are tuned to A, and you strike one, and you hold it next to the other, they don't even have to touch. The sympathetic vibration causes the other one to vibrate because it's tuned to exactly the same note. And so the same thing is true with this, these sacred sounds. There is something in this, in religious imagery and religious sound that seems to cross cultures. There's something human about it. There's something human about it. And so when you say Om Mani Padme Hum, it may have no meaning to you, but it has a meaning to your heart because Chenrezig is in there. A lot of folks in America uh, teach their children uh, about a very compassionate person named Santa Claus. Yes, yeah, St. Nicholas was a real person, but Santa Claus isn't. But a lot of people say that they enjoy Christmas and they enjoy Santa Claus because it's the, the love and the joy of giving that is symbolized by Santa Claus. So people like pretend. They tell their children that Santa Claus exists and they do things with it. 
Well, that's the same thing with compassion. We don't have to pretend that it's in there. But if we model in that way, then that's what we're going to have come out. That's what's going to come out is our compassion. So those are three basic things, or actually four, that you can do to get started in Tibetan Buddhism. One is practice, learn and practice quiet sitting meditation and see what that does for your everyday experience of your mind and practice. Practice compassion meditation and one of the, one of the methods. Metta is just one way, there are lots of others. And the, the third then would be to think about practicing mantra meditation or learning about it. In terms of how to learn about these things, you can actually learn better from human beings than from books. But if you like books, you can read the book Dharma Paths for basic understanding of Tibetan Buddhism from beginning to end. And then there's a, a book called Trainings in Compassion. Trainings in Compassion. And it talks a little bit about mantra practice. And there's another book called Living in Compassion, which is also a good book that talks about compassion and meditation. So trainings in compassion and living in compassion. I think I'm going to stop here and see if anybody has questions, uh, because I could go on and on and on, and that might be useful and it might not be useful. But this at least gives you some practical ways to interface with the whole world of Tibetan Buddhism. And, uh, and there's, oh, there's a good website you can check out. Uh, and it's, um, and in fact, there's, there's articles about everything I've talked about on this website. Uh, www.kagyu, and that's spelled K-A-G-Y-U, Dot org, and that's that's the home website of our center. K a g y u dot o r g, www.kagyu.org. Kagyu is the name of our lineage. Ka means the word or command. It really means the it's it's shorthand for the teachings of the Buddha, and ju means lineage, so lineage of the Buddha's word. It's just a it's just the way that we're called. It's what we're called by. And so there'll be articles on all aspects of Tibetan Buddhism on that site. And they're easy to, easy to read and digest. They're very short. If people have practical questions or just theoretical questions, I'm happy to address those for a little while because we have, we have a little bit of time left.